Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. British Columbia says no to a pipeline to move tar sands oil to the Canadian West Coast for export. Authorities there say it's just too risky. Tar sands oil is very different than conventional oil. But to keep in mind that it's solid in its natural state. It actually has to be mixed with chemicals to push it through a pipeline. So this actually poses much greater threats to water. Also, what's happened to the dirty water in Boston's Charles River? Everyone understood the river was dirty. And if you had an open cut or something like that, you really tried to avoid getting your hands in the water. And of course, the joke back in our day was if you fell in, you had to go immediately to Stillman Infirmary and get a tetanus shot. But uh, that's no longer the case. No, indeed. Nowadays, the Charles is so clean, you can swim in it. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Canadian West Coast province of British Columbia has rejected a proposed pipeline to bring tar sands oil to its ports. The decision likely means more troubles for the proposed and hotly debated Keystone XL pipeline through the U.S. to Texas refineries. Activists are fighting hard against Keystone XL, arguing it would aggravate global warming, though the U.S. State Department claims that with or without Keystone, the tar sands oil will be exported. But Danielle Droich, head of the Natural Resource Defense Council's Canada Project, says the British Columbia decision changes the game. Basically, the British Columbian government said no to moving half a million barrels a day across 600 miles across some of the most rugged and pristine areas of British Columbia. And they did that because of the risk of spills to that pristine environment, the risk to the commercial salmon fishery, and the risk to human health. What's different about tar sands oil than regular oil? Well, that's one of the things that the British Columbian government pointed out, and it's a lesson we can certainly take for the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline, which is that essentially tar sands oil is very different than conventional oil. But to keep in mind that it's solid in its natural state. It actually has to be mixed with chemicals to push it through a pipeline. So this actually poses much greater threats to water. Let's talk a bit about Canadian politics. How important is it for the province to make this ruling on a matter like this? I mean, what power does the central government, does the federal government of Canada have to overrule the province here? The decision to approve pipelines is the jurisdiction of the federal government. So the federal government could go ahead and ignore what the province has said and approve the pipeline. But there are a number of risks in doing that. 60% of British Columbians are opposed to the tar sands pipeline that has just been rejected. It would be very unusual for the federal government to ignore the province. Now, British Columbia has many uh, indigenous groups, many First Nations that have treaties. What say do those First Nations have on the question of the pipeline coming through? Well, the issue of First Nations and this tar sands pipeline is actually quite significant. There are over 70 First Nation communities that are along the pipeline's path, and every single one of them are opposed to this project. 
the federal government could overrule the provincial government, but they don't legally have the ability to overrule the opposition of 71st Nations. And that's really where a lot of financial analysts are basically acknowledging that because there are 71st Nation communities with legal constitutional rights to stop the project, uh, they're basically saying this project is not likely to move ahead at all. Apart from Keystone, what are the other alternative pipeline and rail projects that could bring tar sands oil to international ports? They are now looking at routes to the east. They've actually even floated ideas to go up to the Arctic, which is seems a little crazy, but actually uh, certainly possible if they're that desperate. But really, all those other projects have tremendous hurdles. There's either significant Canadian opposition, there's First Nations opposition, it's economically not feasible. And that is why Keystone XL has become a focal point for the industry so that they can pursue a massive expansion plan. Now, the United States State Department said in their recent report that if Keystone doesn't get built, um, that tar sands is going to market anyway. What impact do you think the British Columbia government's decision has on that uh, argument? Well, the decision by the British Columbian government should force the State Department to completely revisit its conclusion that tar sands development will happen anyway. It really illustrates that tar sands development is not inevitable. The tar sands industry will not be able to get its product to Asian markets through the Canadian lands. They're planning, the tar sands industry is planning to get its product through the United States to international markets. Keep in mind that Keystone XL is not a pipeline to America. It's a pipeline through America. In the wake of this decision by British Columbia, where do you see all of this headed? Well, I think we basically are looking at unfolding developments every month that uh, demonstrate in both the United States and in Canada that there's more awareness that tar sands and tar sands pipelines pose particular, unique, and greater risks to the environment. Historically, a lot of people thought that this is really the same thing as conventional oil and that there really hasn't been a problem. But the more we learn, the more we realize that this particular type of oil is actually something that it's not great for water. It certainly isn't good for climate. And it's not something that most people are wanting to go through their communities. Danielle Droich is the head of the Natural Resources Defense Council's Canada Project. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Well, thanks for having me. Meanwhile, at its recent annual meeting, the oil giant Chevron was once again pressured by nearly a third of its shareholders regarding widespread contamination of water and soil in Ecuador that dates back to the 1960s. Texaco drilled in Ecuador, then later merged with Chevron. After more than 20 years of litigation, the combined company has been ordered to pay $19 billion in damages. Chevron claims it has been unfairly treated and has refused to pay. So the plaintiffs are going after Chevron assets in other countries, including Argentina. Juan Pablo Sainz is an Ecuadorian lawyer for the plaintiffs. He says the area contaminated by the drilling decades ago is still unsafe and unpleasant for people living there. Well, it smells just like a gas station. Previously, where you would have rivers and lakes where indigenous groups would fish, now they're devoid of any, any animal life. These indigenous groups are now 
that they need to eat like canned tuna and, and, and stuff like that. There's this thing that, that oil companies used to do. They used to pour oil on the dirt roads. So I, I don't know exactly what, what their justification for that is. And it's these roads that people would have to work back and forth to work every day. And you hear stories all the time. They, they were walking those roads with their flip-flops and they would get stuck to the road. So they would have to walk barefooted. It's just all, all these little things that paint just as important of how, how pervasive all this living in this area was and how pervasive the oil problem is to the area. How large is the area that's affected? It's contained within two uh, provinces in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest, about the size of the state of Rhode Island. And how much oil was spilled there? Actually, what caused the most damage to the area were about 16 billion gallons of toxic produced water that were pumped directly to the waterways and that were pumped directly to the rivers. Also, you have there uh, about a thousand open air pits. They just dug them directly into the soil with no lining. So actually, there were always all these contaminants managed to flow into nature and from them into animals and then into human beings. Now, the residents in the area say they have a lot of health problems associated with living with the toxicity of the oil-related water pollution. Tell me about that, please. That's probably the hardest part about all this. It's just the human suffering. You get cancer rates that are 150% higher than one would expect from this sort of environments. There's a lot of child leukemia, there's a lot of ovary cancers and, and, and general reproductive health problems for women, uh, miscarriages. And this is made worse because these people have no access to real health care. They, they don't even have answer to clean drinking water, you know. How did this area get to be so polluted? I mean, drilling for oil can result in occasional spills, but this sounds far more reaching than a spill or two. This was designed to pollute. When Texaco, and that's Chevron's predecessor, when Texaco came into Ecuador, they promised uh, that they could extract the cheapest oil barrel in the world. And that's precisely what they did. But how they did that was designing this operation with utter disregard for human life and only considering maximizing economic gains. When they had technology, for instance, to reinject some of these toxics to levels where they wouldn't do any harm to nature or to human life, uh, they just made a cost-benefit analysis, and they simply chose not to. Just remind us of how Chevron uh, got into this case, because uh, it was filed 20 years ago against Texaco. Sure. Texaco basically merged with Chevron between 2001 and 2002. Basically, what they did was they got merged. At the beginning, it was called Chevron Texaco Company. But once they figured out that didn't look good look for Chevron because of Texaco's uh, previous environmental record, they just dropped the technical portion altogether. They are hiding behind lots of subsidiaries and lots of complicated structures to try and hide responsibility and to try and hide behind their, the corporate veil. So this case has been going on for a long time. Just what exactly happened here? At first, we, we filed suit in New York originally, in the federal court in, federal court in New York. Uh, Chevron f- fought us for 10 years, arguing that it was the Ecuadorian courts that were supposed to handle this case. The court actually agreed to do that, but made them promise that Chevron would abide to any decision coming from, from Ecuadorian courts. So we go back to Ecuador. We go back to Ecuador because back then Chevron was, was real chummy and, and it had like a big influence with the government back then. They thought that this would get resolved over a game of golf. So we come back to Ecuador. Uh, we spent 10 years litigating. 
we win uh, the trial, we win on appeals, but not right now they're refusing to pay. And that forces us to make basically a list of countries where Chevron holds assets because they do not in Ecuador. And right now we're in the process of trying to collect the damages in other jurisdictions. Have any of these other nations taken action on your request? Yeah, for instance, in Argentina, we asked there for the assets to be frozen, and they did it. This money that normally flows from Chevron's Argentinian subsidiaries to Chevron's headquarters in the U.S., all that money is set aside in an escrow account. So what's next in this case? We will keep on vigorously fighting and, and defending these actions in, in Canada and Brazil and Argentina. We will be starting new enforcement actions in other jurisdictions. But uh, what's coming soon, hopefully, is that we will be able to start with the remediation of the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest, and that cannot happen soon enough. Juan Pablo Sainz is an Ecuadorian lawyer in Quito, representing the plaintiffs in the Chevron Texaco case. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. To hear Chevron's side of the story, we called up Jim Craig. He's a media advisor for the Chevron Corporation. The plaintiff's lawyers in the case bribed, defrauded, and colluded their way to a $19 billion judgment against Chevron in Ecuador. And there's no reason why one would have to accept a judgment based on this sort of corruption and wrongdoing. What about the substance of the disagreement here? In your view, is Texaco responsible in any way for uh, the pollution that has been observed in the area in question? No. Any pollution or contamination that may exist today is not the responsibility of Texaco. Texaco did a complete remediation in the 1990s. It received a release from the Ecuadorian government and the Ecuadorian state oil company, Petroecuador, which was Texaco's majority partner at the time. The company that didn't do their share of remediation was Petroecuador. Petroecuador agreed to and had an obligation to, under contract and the law, to remediate its two-thirds share of any impacted sites. They didn't do so for almost two decades. They operated exclusively for 23 years with what everyone agrees is an abysmal environmental record. So if there's any contamination today in the Amazon of Ecuador, it's the responsibility of Petro-Ecuador. Okay. So you agree, then, that there, were, uh, there was a, a whole lot of pollution in that area? I didn't say that. Uh, well, do you say that there wasn't pollution in that area? There, there, were, there were identified uh, a certain number of uh, sites that needed remediation, but there isn't the massive contamination that the plaintiffs have continually insisted that there is. Texaco uh, had an obligation to remediate its one-third share of those sites. Those were identified in an audit and were the basis of the agreement which required Texaco to conduct its remediation. Has Texaco ever paid any damages to the communities that were the subject of its remediation activities? Yes, it did. It conducted a remediation program for $40 million, which included several million dollars to settle claims by the same communities that the plaintiff's lawyers claim to represent today. So Chevron paid how much to the communities? Again, it wasn't Chevron. It was Texaco. It was six or seven million dollars, I believe. So your, your response to the people there that uh, have health concerns, uh, cancer, miscarriages and such, is that uh, take it up with Petro Ecuador. I can say something about the health claims that you just mentioned. Official statistics show that the cancer mortality rates in the oil-producing region of the Amazon are actually lower than both the capital of Quito and the non-oil-producing areas of the Amazon. You know, we, we have uh, a lot of reason to believe that these supposed cancer claims are false. So, again, if, if people really have claims to bring, they ought to bring them to the only company that's responsible today for any problems that might exist in that region, and that's Petro-Ecuador. 
James Craig is a spokesman for Chevron. Thank you so much for taking the time, Jim. Sure thing. Coming up, cleanup efforts pay off, at least for some of America's once filthy rivers. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Charles River meanders for 80 miles through eastern Massachusetts on its way down past Harvard, B-U-M-I-T, to the Boston Harbor. King Charles I of England named it after himself when it was first explored by the British back in the 17th century. Yet by the 19th century, the Charles had become a dumping ground for sewage and industrial waste. But now as summer begins, Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom reports the Charles is not only cleaner, for some folks it also means a lot of fun. It's a hot, sunny June morning on the Boston Esplanade. 150 swimmers in numbered yellow and orange caps tread water in the Charles River, just in front of the hat shell where the Boston Pops accompany the 4th of July fireworks every year. I'm going to count down from 10 and then blow the whistle. That's the start. Swimmers had to sign up early to qualify and be able to swim a mile in less than 40 minutes. The Charles River Swimming Club organizes the race. They've held it for the last eight years, but it had to be canceled three times because of unsafe algae levels after heavy rain. Franz Lauetes is president of the swimming club. He says opinions of the river tend to vary depending on age. Uh, I think the younger generations are a little bit more open-minded. They've seen people windsurfing on it. They've seen the swimming race for the last eight years or so. So I think there's a bit more receptivity to uh, the idea of getting in the water. There are still problems with urban runoff, and many Bostonians remember what it used to be like. The people that have known the river at its worst, which tends to be the older generations, they usually have a bit more of a reliably negative reaction because they've seen the river back in its day when it sort of inspired that famous song, Love That Dirty Water. In 1966, when the Stendells were singing about Boston's dirty water, Charlie Hamlin graduated from Harvard. He was a member of the university rowing team. Everyone understood the river was dirty, and if you had an open cut or something like that, you really tried to avoid getting your hands in the water. Today, Hamlin is treasurer of the Cambridge Boat Club. We talked there on a cool morning just as boats full of rowers were heading out onto the river to train. And, of course, the joke back in our day was if you fell in, you had to go immediately to Stillman Infirmary and get a tetanus shot. But uh, that's no longer the case. Charlie leads the way down a gravel path to the dock. I've got one of my scuttling oars with a white blade on it. And if I push it straight down into the water, it disappears about five feet into the water. Whereas if I, back in the day, if I only put it a foot under the water, you wouldn't be able to see it. So it just it's an indication of how much the water's been cleaned up. The pollution on the Charles and many urban rivers in the U.S. started shortly after the first European settlers arrived, when they built mills on the river. Bill Walsh-Rogowski is a lawyer for the Environmental Protection Agency. He says the mills weren't the worst problem. The real pollution began around 1840 when public water supply was 
built in Boston because there was then indoor plumbing, and most of the plumbing drained into the Charles. So there were high levels of sewage going into the Charles. It became worse in 1908 when the dam was built, what's called the Old Dam, which turned the the river and estuary into a lake. So all of that sewage just stayed there as opposed to getting flushed in and out every day. Add blood and offal from five slaughterhouses upstream to the raw sewage, and you had a pretty foul mix. Later came a paint factory and weapons arsenal. Along with them, pollutants like PCBs, copper, and lead. Again, Bill Rogalski. If you take a look at the distribution of contaminants in the sediment, there are high lead levels underneath the bridges. Because until recently, they just scraped the bridges to repaint them, and of course there was lead in the, the paint. The U.S. Geological Survey recently took core samples of sediments in the Charles. They found a spike in lead levels that correspond with the arrival of the automobile and a steady increase until unleaded gasoline was introduced. The sediments of the Charles River is a history of the automobile in Boston in some respects. More than a century of pollution added up to a river so dirty that the idea of swimming in it was the subject of ridicule. In 1988, Boston comedian Mike McDonald offered sunbathers on the riverbank $10 to go for a swim. Would you consider swimming? No, Not even for money? No. Never. Why wouldn't you swim in this river? Because it's disgusting. It's Why? polluted. It's like swimming in a toilet. It's worse. Would you swim in the Charles for 10 bucks? Uh, I think perhaps not. No? <laughs> no? What isn't attractive to you about that? Uh, I'm not interested in, um, I don't know, motor oil, floating oil slicks and things like that, you know. Uh, do you believe the river is polluted? Yeah, I know it's polluted. With uh, what? Pollutants. <laughs> the Clean Water Act in 1972 marked the beginning of a turnaround for the Charles and urban rivers across the country. It was a long road to recovery, but for the first time, industrial and municipal discharge into rivers was regulated. Today, after decades of cleanup efforts, the Charles is a model for river rehabilitation. In 2011, the Charles beat out 146 applicants from 21 countries to win the prestigious International River Prize. Well, it's sort of the Academy Award for river groups worldwide. It brought with it a $330,000 first place prize. Bob Zimmerman is executive director of the Charles River Watershed Association. His organization has been working to clean up the Charles since 1965 and received the award. Zimmerman says the Charles is now clean enough for fish to thrive. The Department of Marine Fisheries and the Department of Fish and Game have been restocking the river, where we have one of the better herring runs on the East Coast. In 2012, a fisherman spotted a sturgeon in the Charles. It's an ancient fish that predates the dinosaurs, but hasn't been seen here in living memory. Generally, urban rivers across the country are cleaner now than they have been for generations. And, says Amy Kober of American Rivers, public enthusiasm for outdoor recreation is on the rise, creating an unprecedented interest in swimming in urban rivers. We are seeing more and more swimming in rivers that used to be polluted. Places like Washington, D.C., the Potomac River is the home of the nation's triathlon, the Willamette River in Portland, Oregon. There are a number of swims on the Hudson in New York. There's a triathlon on the Ohio River There's a swim on the Beaufort River in South Carolina, the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest. So really all around the country, people are using their rivers in that kind of way. Back at the Charles, the first swimmers are returning to the dock. 
How's the water taste? Actually, not that bad. I'm just trying not to swallow it. Swimmer Nick Hill says he trusts the EPA when it says the water is safe for swimming. Still, I probably swallowed, you know, somewhere between a half a cup and a cup. So I hope it's it's safe. They had some environmentalists say the water is safe for swimming. They didn't say it was safe for drinking, but you know, I I think I have a decent immune system, so I, I am confident I will survive. What made you decide to want to do this race at all? This looked like it would be a, a fun challenge. It was. Uh, it's kind of bragging rights. Everybody says, you swam in the Charles? John Wilkinson won the race in just over 22 minutes. I love the location. It is so cool being right in the middle of the city and doing a swim race. And the water really is clean. I know it You know, years ago had a bad reputation, but it's amazing how far rivers like the Charles and the Hudson have come. There are tons of races in those water bodies now, and it's just a testament to all the work that's been done to clean up our rivers. EPA testing shows the Charles is actually safe for swimming roughly 60% of the year, but it's virtually always closed. There's no funding for lifeguards or public beaches. Still, in July, the Charles River Conservancy will host its first-ever public swim, and all the groups working to clean up the river hope that in the future there will be more swims and maybe even clean, safe public beaches. For Living on Earth... I'm Bobby Bascom beside Boston's Charles River. As summer begins along many U.S. rivers, you'll find anglers patiently contemplating their rods and the flowing water. But researchers say when it comes to California, in the future they may be out of luck if they are looking to hook an indigenous fish. A new study from the University of California at Davis finds that many of California's unique fish species could go extinct if global warming continues at current rates. Peter Moyle, one of the lead authors on the study, joins us now from UC Davis. Welcome to Living on Earth, Peter. Thank you very much. Now tell me, why are freshwater fish particularly vulnerable to climate change? Well, freshwater fish don't have any place to escape climate change is one of the reasons. You know, when you're in a stream, you can only go upstream so far before you run into a waterfall or something. So if the conditions in that stream change, you're pretty much stuck. And that's what's going on in California and throughout the West especially, is that streams are predicted to get a lot warmer, you know, 4 to 6 degrees Fahrenheit, especially in late summer. And the stream flows are going to become more variable. So the fish are really going to be stressed as a result of climate change. And this will be an accumulative thing over the next 50 to 100 years. So how did you determine the vulnerability of freshwater fish? How do you quantify this? Well, I've done periodic assessments of the California fish fauna. I did one in 1975, one in 1989, one in 1995, and now more recently. And this in turn then allowed me, when I wanted to do a climate change assessment, to go through the literature and rate them on 20 different metrics in terms of their vulnerability to climate change. When we scored 121 native fishes and 43 non-native fishes, 80% of the, or 82% really, of the uh, native fishes are going to suffer heavily from climate change, and many of them to the point where they'll go extinct. Basically, many of the native fishes are already on a downward trajectory because of uh, so many other things going on to California's water. And climate change just adds that extra stress. 
and it's more likely to push them to extinction. So you're saying 80% of uh, endemic, that is native freshwater fish in California, likely to go extinct or close to extinct because of what's happening to the climate. That's right. So talk to me about the fish species that are the most vulnerable and the ones that were surprises for you as well. Well, the fish that are most vulnerable are those that require cold water. Those fishes include very distinctive populations and runs of Chinook salmon and coho salmon, uh, steelhead trout, as well as species like delta smell and ulicon. And these are the species they require cold water, and the many of our rivers are going to simply get too warm for them. Now, what about the non-native fish? Your report said that they're going to do a lot better. Why? Yeah. Well, basically, when people, Europeans, I should say, came to California in the 19th century, they decided native California fish fauna wasn't good enough for them. So they brought in all kinds of non-native fish, especially those that can do well in reservoirs and in, and in really warm water habitats, because we've been essentially changing things in California ever since the gold rush and generally creating warmer water habitats anyway. So you bring in your catfish, your bass, your carp, species that really thrive in warm water environments, and essentially we're creating more of those environments with climate change. And so these species are just going to thrive, and then that provides an additional stress factor on the native fishes because there is competition between native and non-native species. So as you make the environment more favorable for the non-native species, they put additional pressure on the natives and help to accelerate the decline. So salmon, trout, steelhead, these are, you know, these are pretty tasty fish. What impact might this have on the California economy? Well, when you talk about the California economy, you always find that fisheries, especially for salmon, are a tiny fraction of that economy. We are not like Washington or Oregon that have a major part of their economy driven by these fisheries. But the important thing is that our fisheries will decline, and to the great distress of the fishermen, and unless we really work hard to reverse the trend. What will it do for nature around these uh, streams and lakes uh, to lose these fish? Well, salmon, of course, are a species which comes up from the ocean in large numbers then die in the streams where they're spawning. This provides a big influx of nutrients for the fish and for uh, the invertebrates and for everything else around these streams. I, I did a study once relating what salmon nutrients do to a stream surrounded by vineyards, and we found that not only did all the local wildlife benefit from salmon, we even got photographs of deer coming down to munch on salmon carcasses, but we found that the vineyards alongside the stream uh, actually incorporated marine nutrients into the leaves of the grapes, suggesting that grapes were partially being fertilized by salmon. So there's a real benefit in, in that regard to wildlife and even to farming from having these salmon coming upstream. So what can we do to save California's fish? Well, the biggest single thing you can do in California from a water manager point of view is to reoperate our dams. We have roughly 1,500 really large dams in the state and another you know, probably a couple thousand that are smaller. Most of these dams do not release enough water below them. The way you release water is you have to maintain your cold water pool in the reservoirs because in reservoirs, water stratifies it. It flows into the reservoirs in the winter when the water's cold. The cold water sinks to the bottom, and then you get the surface water that's really warm. Well, most reservoirs can release water from the bottom. When they do that, you're releasing the cold water 
that the native fishes, the salmon, really like. So you have to conserve that cold water and use it specifically for fish as long as you can during the summer months. So we know there's lots of things we can do, but it takes some fairly sophisticated management of our dams and rivers to make these things happen. Peter Moyle is a professor of fish biology at UC Davis. Thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Coming up, the changing climate and its effects on one of life's essential pleasures, a nice cup of tea. That's next on Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As science was predicting more weather extremes linked to climate change, a group of researchers in South Africa began working with farmers to see if traditional methods might provide resilience for agriculture. Nearly a decade ago, Living on Earth's Eileen Belinsky and I visited South Africa's succulent Karoo to discover how this unique agricultural area was faring as climate change began to bite. It's daybreak in the far southwestern corner of Africa, a few hours' drive north of the Cape of Good Hope. We're in the wild lands and farming country known as the succulent Karoo. The broad plateaus look like a desert dotted with shrubs called fainbos, vast and bland, except when early spring rains ignite blooms of wildflowers. Like other parts of South Africa, there are many plants here found nowhere else in the world. Though with its biting winters and scorching summers, the semi-arid Karoo has a radically different climate from much of the rest of the country. Its unique location and size have attracted scientists looking for evidence of the local impact of global climate change. Farmers here grow grain like oats and barley and raise sheep. This is also the only place where the famous South African rooibos or redbush tea grows. This woody shrub looks much like the many other fainbos bushes, although a closer look reveals shiny dark green leaves shaped much like the herb rosemary. Traditionally, the koisan or bushman brewed a bright reddish-orange tea from the rooibos leaves. Now, thanks to the smooth taste of the tea and its reputation as a promoter of health, the cultivation of rooibos is the biggest cash crop for many farmers here, including Koos Koopman. I grow rooibos tea, and then I make a little bit of small uh, fruits, fruit and a little bit of vegetables in the garden, like potatoes, carrots, cabbages, oranges, guavas. I don't plant uh, vegetables for marketing. I want to do it, but I haven't got enough money yet to, to do that. Koos Koopman grew up on this land as the son of a colored farmhand. In the days of apartheid, colored was a distinct classification different from white or black Africans. Koos's brown skin, almond-shaped eyes, and wiry build suggest he may well have some Khoisan ancestors. He moved away to the city of Cape Town for three decades, but a few years ago, after the end of apartheid, he came back to the area. By then, he and his brother Barry were in their 50s. They used government assistance to purchase this farm of more than 10 square miles from the white farmer who had once employed Koos and his father. I was always thinking of this farm. And so about two years back, 
I come here one day and he tell me that he got problems. As we sit here in front of the house, he asked me, Kuis, I want to sell this farm now and I want you to, sell, to buy the farm. So you're all in this together. This is a family farm. It's a fa- family farm, yeah. Can we go to there? I want to see my pot quickly. I was busy to make uh, some uh, soup for us, for lunchtime. You know, that is the way I grow up. With my, uh, with my pot here, the outside. We buck our own bread. We make everything for ourselves, you know. We try to be, do so little as possible from the shops. And that's the only way you can survive on a farm. What's in the, what's in the pot? It is my own beans. Saving money is especially important when you have a new and high mortgage on your farm. And during the drought of 2003, things were very difficult for Kus. 40 to 70 percent of his rooibos plantings withered and died. Cultivated rooibos is his biggest source of cash, but there was a tiny bright spot. During the drought, the wild rooibos plants scattered among the brush on his land seemed to hold their own. Like every farmer, Coos knows there can be bad years, but he does feel the seasons are becoming less predictable. I asked him how they are changing. Sometimes very hot, sometimes very cold. I'm not talking about the rain. Cold, and then snow, like a little snow. And that is drying, that, that, that burns the, 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 the plants. And some of the things, when it was, it's wet and the rain fall and it's very cold in the evening, uh, 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 during the evening, no? Mm-hmm. And during the day, it gets very hot. A few kilometers closer to town in Newitville, the family of Marriott and Willem van Wyck has been farming for six generations since their ancestors came from the Netherlands. Marriott van Wyck pours me a cup of the naturally caffeine-free rooibos tea and tells me that their operation has also been hit hard by the drought of 2003. Well, for the past 10 years, we couldn't complain. And then last year came as a total surprise, being so dry. We had uh, one major rain, but everything failed. Usually they harvest 40 tons of rooibos in a year. In 2003, 80% of the crop failed. And when it became clear that the magnificent display of spring flowers was also not going to happen, it meant the tourists didn't come to the bed and breakfast the Van Wicks have run for almost two decades. And with nothing growing for forage, they could not afford much in the way of rations for their flock of 2,000 sheep. Parsing out what little grain they did have to the sheep and recently born lambs proved to be a heartbreaker for Marriott. When they see the bucky or the pickup coming, they all run to that because they know it's food. In the commotion, every mother loses her lamp. So every morning you will find 20, maybe less, hopefully less, sheep or little lambs dead around that. And the first time my husband took me out with him, I felt like crawling under the bed when I came back. I just couldn't handle all those little dead bodies lying there. If we have good rains for the next two years, we hope to recover um, in about two to three years. So let me ask you this. How much does it seem that that the weather is outside the normal range of what it seems to have been all the years that your family's been farming here? Um, I am always careful to uh, say this. People are talking a lot about they don't understand the weather any longer And it's happening later and later that your winter clothes are coming out. 
on the road along the front of the Soidbacheveld Mountains into the town center of Newitville, rows of cultivated rooibos look dusty and dry in the heat of what locals say should be a cool early winter day. Signs that this could be more than just the odd dry spell have attracted the interest of scientists at the Climate Systems Analysis Group at the University of Cape Town. The science involved is complicated, but the general scientific consensus is that the Earth is warming because of the widespread burning of coal, oil, and gas since the Industrial Revolution, as well as the cutting of vast amounts of forests. The El Nino weather pattern that seems to come more and more often with this warming tends to parch this corner of the planet. One of the climate change projections is that there will be a longer-term drying out or a reduction for the kind of broader area, not just for the state Bokerfeld, but for interior South Africa. Dr. Emma Archer is a geographer with the Climate Systems Analysis Group. A second one which is quite worrying is that there may be an increase in the frequency of what we call dry spells. So a period without rain, which is critical for agriculture within a rainy season, we may be getting more of those. And most importantly, the broad projection, and something which the World Meteorological Organization actually put out a brief last year on which they agreed, whereas people may have been receiving rainfall within a certain range, around a normal value, it seems as though that variability will increase. And so more extreme precipitation events will be experienced. Emma Archer is in Newitville to get the word out to local farmers that not only should they expect less rain, but they will also get it at different times than they're used to getting it, and it's time to start planning how to adapt. A few years ago, a group of rooibos farmers in the Newitville area organized themselves into the Haybell Cooperative with the help of the Environmental Monitoring Group and Advocacy Agency. To boost income, they got their crop certified as organic and developed markets in Europe where the reputed health benefits of rooibos are prized. They are also working on strategies to cope with the effects of long-term drought. Noel Utley is program manager for the monitoring group. The farmers are quite aware that the climate is getting tougher. That's their perception. And the data is certainly supporting a trend towards drier and, and more extreme climatic events. And there are a number of ways in which they can adapt their practice towards production, which is less likely to be affected by climate. Some growing techniques involve plowing in ways that conserve moisture and using other plants to block winds that promote drying. And the experience of Coos and other farmers with drought-tolerant wild rooibos is prompting some botanical research as to the feasibility of using the wild tea to help adapt to climate change. Rhoda Lowe is a graduate student in botany at the University of Cape Town who is conducting a study with farmers of the Havel Cooperative. We're looking at the sustainable harvesting of rooibos wild tea. Which is relatively slow growing, but Rhoda is looking to see if farmers could gather enough of it to make it economically worthwhile. And we were looking particularly at the wild rooibos tea because it's, it's a strong source of income for the people in the state Bokerfeld. There could be advantages. The cultivated tea that farmers use now can be harvested every year, but it has to be replanted every few years at considerable expense. The wild variety only needs to be carefully harvested by hand where it's found, although it can only be cut every two years. Rhoda and Emma want to take me on a tour of Rhoda's experimental plots in Coos's wild rooibos fields. But first, we decide to try a bit of research on our own, from the perspective of a consumer, me. Some sugar with your tea. Oh, no, thank you. Just a little bit of milk. If wild rooibos tea is to be successfully marketed, it will need to stand up to the flavor of the popular cultivated rooibos. 
So Noel, Rhoda, and Emma give me a taste test. Hmm. Hmm. This is good. This is outstanding. Steve, you get out wild then from the north of the world. The cultivated tea is delicious, and the wild rooibos tastes great with a sweet aftertaste like honey. We're back on the farm of Coos Koopman to see the wild rooibos tea plants that Rodolo is studying. But before we head for the fields, Coos stops to tend his flock of sheep. In case of drought, Coos says he's careful to limit the size of his flock. He wouldn't want them to overgraze and clean out his wild rooibos. He'd like to sell their meat as organic, but he hasn't found a market yet. Still, he foregoes hormones and antibiotics in favor of traditional herbs to treat any illnesses in the flock. As we wait to drive to the fields, botanist Rhoda Lowe explains how she'll use the data about wild rooibos she's gathering at the Koopman farm. We're trying to marry the scientific knowledge with the indigenous knowledge, which there's a great body of, and trying to integrate that. And the final product will not be just the thesis, but also a harvesting manual that will come out of the research based on the results. What are some of the indicators you're using for your study? One of the research uh, questions is, the, is what is the difference between the wild tea and the cultivar? To measure that, we're looking at the life cycles of the two and comparing them over time. Another experiment is we're trying to see which harvest season gives you the greatest regrowth after a year. Climate researcher Emma Archer, Coos, and Rhoda point out some planted tea fields and various soil conditions on our way to the wild rooibos, and Rhoda does a bit of translating as Coos slips into Afrikaans. Uh, Rhoda, you don't have a date like this plant here, no? This is, this is a cultivated tea in both sides. This tea is about six years old. Yeah. Now, if you look at this patch over here, on my left, now here you're going to get more moisture here than down below. There's more rainfall here because it's higher. And you can see that. That's only dobe under place in it. But it's out of the vehicle to see the wild tea and more than just a short hike. I'm going to take you to some of the sites, to some of the samples within the experiments here. Rhoda has about 250 plants in her experiment. The tea bush branches are cut off by hand with a sickle, leaving enough behind so that it can keep growing. Farmers already know that the planted or cultivated rooibos might produce for less than a decade. The wild bushes have a longer productive life and can grow to be 50 years old. The wild tea is also more resistant to pests than its cultivated cousin, although the same pests go after both. Can you move wild rooibos? Can you, felt rooibos, can you move the plant and replant it? Uh, that is uh, something I experience uh, at the moment. I'm busy with it, Minerola, but it don't work. As we walk through the brush to find the experimental plants, we see one that was harvested the previous year in April during the drought, and it's almost dead. Others fared a bit better, and then we come upon a particularly robust rooibos plant, and Rhoda flashes a big smile. This is the July, one of the samples harvested in July. So this is your most successful one from last year? From what I'm seeing, this is the most successful. What's the traditional time to cut this? Uh, the traditional time is any time from February to April. So, but look at those ones who are cutting uh, January, February, and until March. The experiments of that and the growing of that are much slower than the one of 
July. So that is thinking that uh, something that I work on, maybe. But there's one thing you can't dry the tea on July, man, because it needs sun, and it is in a rainy season, July. And we need sun, no rain, when we harvest the tea and make the tea. So the production factors that play a role in when tea gets harvested conventionally. But the tea, from what I'm seeing, the tea is responding to rain events, not season patterns, but rain patterns. As we leave the experimental plot, the ironies sink in. Wild tea is more resilient than cultivated tea, but it does its best when it's harvested during the rainy season. Yet traditional methods of curing the tea must be used when there is no chance of rain. Like much good research, this study is raising as many questions as it is answering. For example, what cost-effective techniques could be used to process wild rooibos when it rains? And could timing the harvest according to the rains help the cultivated rooibos as well? Long-established farmers in the region, as well as people trying to get started like Coos, all share the changing climate of this place, and hopefully all can share in the benefits of the adaptation strategies that farmers as well as scientists develop in the coming season. Meanwhile, Coos is working toward a future that he hopes he can pass on to his children. And he's confident with his experience and faith and the findings of the researchers, he'll find a way to survive. And we pray for the rain and then come and see me in five years' time. What happens if it doesn't rain? Uh, I will never say that it, doesn't, it won't rain. It will rain. God makes summer, winter, spring, and everything... You know, there's one thing that the farmer must have. He must never lose hope. South African farmer Koos Koopman. Well, in the succulent Karoo seven years on, the wild rooibos and the adaptation strategies have proved their value. Production and exports of organic rooibos have expanded, and researchers there are now turning to traditional methods in collaboration with local livestock farmers to find out how their flocks can cope in the face of hotter summers and less predictable rainfall. On the next Living on Earth, rethinking energy use to fight global climate change, how that's working out for some South African winemakers. I'd like to think that we're taking at least 20-25% off the bottom line as far as fuel and electricity goes. Doing well by doing good, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Alicia Zhuang, Helen Palmer, Ponzi Rutch, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, 
the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.